What's good, everybody, and welcome to another episode of the Amatelic TIS podcast here on this New Year's Eve. To recap, at least the uh, Alabama uh, Cincinnati Cotton Bowl champion, uh, Cotton Bowl Classic National uh, College Football Playoff uh, semifinal game. Uh, we will eulogize John Madden here at the top, who passed away earlier this week. Uh, the ultimate ambassador to the sport of football in the NFL. And, of course, the Week 17 preview. A lot of uh, good marquee uh, games on the docket for the second-to-last uh, week of week-slash-weekend uh, of the 2021 NFL regular season as we open up the new year on uh, Sunday, which will be January the 2nd. Give you a preview of that game. Give you my picks. A couple things I got to say about uh, Kirk Cousins and Garson Wentz, both who are hell-bent on being unvaccinated, uh, you know, back in the summertime. And lo and behold, you know, when when, their se- when both of their respective seasons are hang- they're hanging on uh, to their respective seasons and their playoff hopes by a damn thread, all of a sudden, uh, you know, all of a sudden, they come down with uh, with COVID, and in, in Kirk Cousins' case, he came down with it so close to uh, so close to game day that even with the new uh, COVID, with the new league COVID protocols, there's not a chance in hell. Even if he w- you know, if he was un- if he was vaccinated, you know, the two negative tests, but unvaccinated, even with the two, uh, even with the new league protocols for uh, for. Players testing positive with COVID. You test positive on a Friday. There's no chance in hell, uh, especially if you're unvaxxed, you're going to be able to play uh, in a game in a, in a game that's being played on Sunday. You know, less than 72 hours from now. But anyway, I will get into that a little bit later on the program, and I digress. Where we will begin is uh, is on a very somber note, and that is uh, that the that one of football's pioneers and one of the greatest um you know one of football's pioneers definitely one of the greatest coaches uh in the history of the National Football League uh and John Madden passed away at age 85 on Tuesday night um and Tuesday night in his home in Northern California John Madden born April 10th 1936 uh, died on uh, died on December the twenty eighth. John Madden, of course, you know from the you know the broadcasting perspective and 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 the pioneer with sports video games and and Madden with EA Sports and all that sort of stuff and the in the pitchman and in the, the entertaining pitchman he was for commercials and everything. But uh, this just to go through John Madden's life and give you a, my two cents on that all Madden documentary that I finally got around to watching that aired Christmas Day that I got around to watching uh, when on a uh, Thursday night. Um, couple things with John Madden, he only coached ten years in the National Football League. He only coached ten, and do you know that he has the highest winning percentage? Highest winning percentage as a coach in the National Football League who who won at minimum one hundred games. Which when I which when I found which when I found that out the other night, uh on uh on um what on um, Tuesday night, 
I, I was I was I was blown away because and it's I you know what I'll save the ironic piece for later on in the monologue, but you know John Madden coached from 1969 to 1970 coached in 1969 to 1978 he never had a losing season ever as a head as a head coach for the Oakland Raiders the worst he finished. The worst record he had as an NFL head, the worst record he had as an NFL head coach was uh, when he went when he went eight eight four and two twice in back to back seasons in nineteen seventy and nineteen seventy one. He won the Super. He was a head coach of that seventy six Raiders team that won the, that won the Super Bowl. He was at age forty at that point in time, the youngest. Uh, head coach in the history of the National Football League to win a Super Bowl. He went twelve and one in his first season in nineteen sixty nine. Uh, like I said, uh, like I said, uh, went eight four and two in back to back seasons of seventy and seventy one fifty years ago. Seventy two. That of course was the season in which the Raiders lost uh, that divisional playoff game to the Steelers. Ended up getting beat by the seventy two Dolphins that went undefeated in the AFC Championship game. But of course that was the season. In which they uh, in which they lost to Pittsburgh. That was kind of like the catalyst and the and the and the uh, launching pad of the '70 Steelers dynasty. Even though they didn't win the Super Bowl that year, that is like the number one moment you look to when you talk about Steelers franchise history and the '70s dynasty and everything else. Was that immaculate reception game? Uh, and back then, in case you guys didn't realize, it was a at at that point in time in the NFL going on what 50 years ago. Uh, the ball could not hit off of an offense, could not ricochet off an offensive player, and be fielded, and and you know ran down, you know and ran slash returned down the field by another offense by another offensive player. And there's always you know the famous argument, you know did you know did um did the you know did the ball hit the hit the uh, Pittsburgh? I'll give you his name since I'm bringing it up. But uh, you know, did the ball hit off of the receiver player first, or hit off the, uh, or hit off the uh, Raiders defender first, and everything else? And you know, and how the officials, uh, you know, were on the phone with New York for 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 a long, long time, until they came up with a ruling. And if you've ever seen like the Football Life documentary on the Immaculate Reception, there's conspiracy theory out there. That if the officials would have changed, that the officials essentially let the play stand out of fear that essentially Three Rivers Stadium would go up in smoke and then like a potential riot would break out because it was such a momentous play. And of course, back in 1972, those were the days where, you know, where uh, where you could storm the field and nobody said boo. Um, it was The question was either... The question was, did it bounce, did it go off the hands of John uh, Fequa, the wide receiver who Terry Bradshaw threw the ball to, or Raiders safety Jack Tatum? And uh, John Madden was the coach of that game. Matter of fact, and it was really crazy, if you look at the, if you look at like the greatest game slash most memorable plays in the history of the National Football League, especially just in that 70s decade alone, uh, John Madden was the, was on the sidelines for many of those games. The immaculate reception, of course, uh, sticks out like a sore thumb. The sea of hands game, the holy the holy roller that that game and that play that moment is the reason why you know you can't is when the quarterback fumbles the football, especially if it's like in the motion of his arm going forward. You know you can't 
you can't uh, you can't uh, you know advance the ball because of that holy roller play where Kenny Staber you know kind of was realized he was getting sacked and kind of just chucked the ball underhanded to make to get to give it the optics to give it the illusion that it was a fumble when everybody in the mother knows that he did that on purpose and if it, that play took place in 2021 it would be ruled in an incomplete pass we got the holy roller game goes to the post see a hands immaculate reception game all games that uh, all games that John Mann was a part of but going back to the winning percentage that uh, with a minimum, with a minimum of a hundred, not a hundred wins, but a minimum of one hundred games coached, John Madden has the highest career winning percentage by a head coach still to this day in a in the one hundred and two, uh, one hundred and two season, one hundred and uh, one year anniversary, uh, or uh, not anniversary, but one hundred and one. 101 year and 100 second season in the National Football League that still stands to this day with a winning percentage of 759 and a career record of 103 32 and 7. And of course, he went into the Hall of Fame in 2006 as a uh, as a as a coach. The one that comes second, of course, is Lombardi with 738. He has only has 96 wins. George Allen has 712 with 116. And of course, John Madden, you know, who John Madden, of course, the 76 Super Bowl with the Raiders. Then in 77, they went 11 and 3. 778, they went 9 and 7. That was the last last year he ever coached was 1978. My father was in diapers. Uh, my father was in diapers by the time uh, John Madden coached his final season. He retired in 79. If you saw the all man documentary, you saw he swore that he would never coach again. Simply just out of simply, you know, and this is coming from a perspective of somebody who, you know, when John Madden called his final game as a broadcaster, you know, yours truly was six years old. Um, but uh, you, you know, you get that you saw that he was just he was burnt out. He was bur because because you saw how animated he would get on the sidelines, yelling and screaming at the officials, yelling and screaming at his players. You heard the line from you know when Howard Cosell said a great show, great show, John and John Madden. You know, flipped out at him. He was like, "This ain't a show, my guys. You know, this is life and death for these guys. This ain't a show." So he was so emotionally. Not not to say that every that every coach, especially a coach of a contending team like the Raiders were in the seventies, you know, aren't a hundred and twenty percent emotionally invest, invested in their team, but just the way John Matt the the his behavior and how he went about being so emotionally invested in his team and and just those ten years, it was like, I I, I you know he was tapped out he, he could he couldn't he couldn't do it. And unlike Dick Vermeil, who kind of walked away from coaching about a couple of seasons after Madden did in the early '80s, unlike Vermeil, Madden didn't come. Madden didn't come back to coach. You know, twenty plus years later, he retired in '79, and never coached on the sideline. Uh, never coached on the sideline for an NFL game ever again. And you know, of course, the contributions that he made as a broadcaster. Uh, I bring up the Howard Cosell story because you know, while he was a coach, he looked down on broadcasters. Didn't see him as equal. You see, you hear the if you watch the documentary, he brought up the nickname he gave him, called him hairdos, and then you know he retires, and it's like you know he's got he's got to find something to do. You know, he he's like, okay, I don't want to coach again, but I gotta. Find, he still loved the footballs. So he went to go 
coached that uh, that man-to-man football course at Cal Berkeley. Uh, he was that bored for crying out. He still had the love of the game for football, but he just didn't have the motivation or have the energy to continue coaching. So it's like, oh, what are we going to do? And all of a sudden, you know, around the turn of the decade heading into the early 80s, he, you know, decides to give broadcasting a try. And, you know, does that, uh, does that mock, does that mock broadcast with Bob Costas and the, you know, gets paired up with Pat Summerall a few years later and the rest is history. Um, of course had a famed, uh, broadcasting career. He rose, he, his, his claim to fame in his second career and his rise to fame as a broadcaster came with his days at CBS, you know, the first, the first place that he had worked at as a broadcaster and during the 1980s. You know, he was, uh, during the 1980s, he was one of the, uh, ba- you know, he, he was, he was just as much a popular figure of 1980s NFL football as a broadcaster as Montana, Dan Marino, uh, Dan Fouts, uh, you know, Bill Walsh, uh, you know, you, you know, you pick, you go, you go down the list of, of great players that, you know, Marcus Allen. He was just as monumental to the sport during that decade as all the Hall of Fame players and coaches that coached and played throughout that nineteen throughout that nineteen eighties decade. You know, he was different. You know, he he was exciting the way he the way he used and revolutionized the telestrator dot to diagram a play. What went wrong here? Here's the defensive lineman blitzing through this gap. You see the offensive tackle pulling to his opposite side. You know, things things of things of that nature. He became popular because he was really one of the first broadcasters that really broke down the technique and the blocking and the blocking schemes of offensive linemen because he himself, of course, was an offensive lineman back in the late fifties when he was on Eagle. A practice squad, and uh, so he's ahead of his time, and he was a one of a kind when it came to that. Uh, and then, of course, with the boom, with the boom, and the and the doink, and the bam, and the whap, you know, using using those automata, auto auto monopia words, you know, when he was when he was analyzing the game, and he and he and Pat Summerall, you know, meshed together and worked well like peanut butter and jelly. And then, of course, he goes to Fox when. NFL hangs CBS out the dry at the end of the 93 season. So he stays at Fox from 94 to 2002. And then, you know, does a couple years doing, of course, the famed Monday Night Football. Then, then you know, is the end. he ends up becoming the first game analyst for Sunday Night Football from 2006 to Super Bowl 43 at the end of the 08 season. And he hung it up from there. And then, of course, got in contact with Trip Hawkins at EA Sports. You know, created the man, created the uh, Madden NFL back then was called John Madden Football, his first release. And, and you know, and you, uh, you know, and how Trip was like, you know, with this type of technology is going to be pretty hard, you know, to have 11 on 11. John Madden was like, if I ain't 11 on 11, don't make the game. That ain't considered football. So he and you and when you just talk about and think about John Madden's legacy as a whole, you know, you, you there's. There's only one person that comes to mind that I can think of off the top of my head that is that much of an ambassador and found a way to still stay relevant and still stay popular within the sport that they played slash coached that well into their, you know, well into their 50s. There's only one person, one other sport that caught that. You know that kind of comes in this in a similar stratosphere as what John Madden did to the sport of football in the NFL, and that's Charles Barkley.
with with the work that with the work he's done for over twenty years as a broadcaster. He's the off the top of my head. He's the only one, the only one that ha- that that comes close to that John Madden esque type of influence and popularity that they still have on the sport that they're involved with long after they just dis- long after those two respective individuals decided to hang it up you know Barkley retiring from playing in the NBA and Madden retiring from coaching in 1979 but he's the only one that comes close but you look at what John Madden you know he did everything he he didn't coach very long but in the but it but in that small ten window, that small window of ten years in which he did coach again, never had a losing season, won a suit, won a Super Bowl, and he still is the most winningest, uh, still the most winningest uh, head coach in the history of the NFL when it come by according to you know going by winning percentage, having coached at a having coached at a minimum of one hundred games. He's got the highest highest winning percentage all these years. He ret- he retired over forty years ago. He still re- he still remains number one as far as best winning percentage by NFL head coach in the history of the sport, which is quite remarkable. Got inducted into the Hall of Fame in 06, uh in a, you know in 06 as a coach. You hear all the t- I hear all the time from the people that you know were old enough to remember the John Madden coach Raider teams is that the what hurt Madden's not 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 that it was a knock against him or anything he did, but it was that he you know the Raiders were 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 a good football team before Madden became the coach, and of course were a gr- were a great football team in the eighties under Tom Flores's, uh, who ironically enough got inducted into the Hall of Fame this past August. Uh, they were they were a phenomenal football team in the eighties after after Madden retired, and they were a very good team back in the back in the sixties before Madden coached the team. But you know, which which in my opinion, you know, is not an indictment on Madden. That just goes to just how well how well ran and just how successful the Raider organization was essentially from. You know the mid late sixties all up all up through the Brian Flores all up through the Brian not Brian uh, the Tom Flores era in the in you know throughout the eighties so that wasn't you know that wasn't a diamond on him and I don't think that's an indictment on him that just just goes to show just how well ran at least at the time uh, the Oakland slash uh, L A Raiders were. With Al Davis, of course, being the man in charge, I guarantee you, coaching under Al Davis. If people say you know coaching under Jerry Jones is no easy task, well, I guarantee you, back in the back in the day, coaching for Al Davis was probably a lot harder. But you know, John is just a phenomenal ambassador to the sport. His contributions as Super Bowl winning Hall of Fame head coach, as a broadcaster, you know, from the early '80s all up until two thousand, up all up until that, all up until. Uh, that uh that that Sunday in February Super Bowl forty Super Bowl at the Super Bowl forty three of course that classic between the Steelers and the Cardinals, you know he excelled at everything you know revolution revolutionized the video game industry and revolutionized uh you know sports sports and being depicted in video games with Madden and eleven on eleven football and and the Ask Madden feature play calling and 
and having you know playbooks in the game so so the kids and the young adults playing the game you know learn you know learn the sport they learn the rules they get into it they begin to you know they begin to like it they begin you know and John Madden is a huge even to this day you know he's the you know and you got a large the, the the majority of people that are that are wandering the earth that are football fans in 2001 21 a large going into 22 a large a large majority of them know John Madden as John Madden the broadcaster and remember John Madden the broadcaster with the with the with the games he did with Summerall on uh, on the uh, on the two di- on the two different networks and watching him do Monday night and Sunday night football with Al Michaels on the two different networks towards the turn of the se- towards the turn of the new century in the early 2000s but you also have this other generation such as such as myself and and the younger members of generation Z you know who know who John Madden is because of that video game, you know, because that video, because that video game, and, and because how that video game became a tool of 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 spreading the love of the of the game of football down from generation to generation to generation to generation to teach them the ins and outs and the rules and the and the guidelines and all the intricacies of the sport, you know that that that's that's John Madden, and he truly truly loved the game of football he did i mean and i didn't know this until i saw like the little epilogue piece at the end of the old man documentary uh, apparently up until his death he would he would he you know he was on the board of the of the league's competition committee the man and the turducken thing and changing hell even changing the way americans you know eat on thanksgiving and and the all Madden and the all Madden team and the and the turkey leg award he'd give out at the end of Thanksgiving games, whether it be in Dallas, Detroit, where, I mean he he truly was one of a kind, unique. You know, and my my father, you know, told me how he would have memories. You know, he of course is an eighty born in nineteen seventy eight, so he of course was the he of course is an eighties kid, and you know during his child during his uh. You know, during his childhood, he exp- he experienced Madden's rise to fame as a broadcaster with his days with Summerall, with his days, you know, working with Summerall on CBS. And he told me earlier this week how he would have fond memories of watching, you know, the whatever the game of the week was on CBS with his with his grandfather and hearing, you know, John Madden call and do the games and things like that. It was just. He was a special man, and to everybody that he ever interacted with, whether it be his players back in the 70s with the Raiders or the Melissa Starks of the world who were at that point in time going on 20 years ago were breaking into the broadcasting. Every person he ever worked with and or in, interacted with had the highest praises of man as a human being and just what a what a genuine person, what a genuine and what a, just a nice person he was nice and you know just the dot and just to uh and just and it's funny it's ironic because my buddy jared shout out to him uh when my old buddies that i went to middle school with and and uh my freshman year of high school he he called me he facetimed me in the in the late night hours of uh of christmas day uh last saturday 
And uh, and this is after he texted me, you know, who do you think is a better coach in your eyes, John Madden or Vince Lombardi? Uh, and I was like, uh, Lombardi, no question. Prior to Belichick, you know, greatest coach of all time. And so he ended up FaceTiming me later that night. And he told me about how essentially all what he spent his Christmas Day doing was watching those uh, football life documentaries. And he got around to watching the one they did on Lombardi and the one that he did and the one that they did on John Madden. And he and I, and I as God be my witness, when I tell you he's 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 the same, he, you know, he's the same age as me. And, you know, he's he's the same. He's the same age as me and everything. I, I, I'm telling you on my life, on my life, he brought up and how blown away he was, which is the most important thing. When he heard that story with Madden and Lombardi, eight hours of Lombardi breaking down and teaching to Madden. And Madden, of course, was a student and a teacher of the game. He loved the coach and he loved to teach. And that, and that teaching outside of that little time he spent at Berkeley, teaching, he I, one of the reasons why it made him a great broadcaster is that not only was he an expert at the game, but he loved teaching he loved te- he loved he loved to teach the the game of football and the ins and outs of it. He loved he loved he loved to teach it. But anyway, how the story of how Madden took the sojourn up to Wisconsin, and Lombard he and Lombardi spent eight hours with a lunch break in between the four hours breaking down the power sweep. Eight hours breaking down the power sweep. And when I tell you, when in the wee hours of Sunday morning, when Jared, when I mean to tell you that my buddy Jared was blown away, when he, you know, he told me, when I mean to tell you that he was blown away, he was blown away. Blown away. The fact that Lombardi and Madden were together for eight hours breaking down one play in the power sweep. He was blown away. That's John that's John Madden for you. Told me. And you know and, and the fact that doc, that the documentary aired earlier that day on Saturday and then less than a week later, you know, he's gone. Very eerie, very ironic feeling. Especially because, you know, I like, you know, for those of you all who know, Chris Romero Russo, you know, buddies with him and everything else, listen to his show religiously all the time. And he has a Tuesday spot with uh, with famed and with famed uh, long tenured NFL writer Peter King, formerly of Sports Illustrated, now of NBC Sports, has him on every Tuesday during the NFL season at four o'clock. Oh, and I mean to tell you that, I mean, Peter and Peter was a part, was one of those people, one of the many personalities that got interviewed and said his piece about Madden during the documentary. He, he told Dog that one of the beauties of the Madden documentary was the fact that, was the fact that he got, that he got, that he got his tribute and he got his flowers while he was alive. That a lot of time you see like these, these long drawn out tributes and these long and these documentaries a lot of times when you know when people passed away 
and he said the beauty of it was that Madden got his flowers while he was alive to see it, embrace it, be thankful for it, and enjoy it. And less than and about you know about less than three hours later, he was gone. He was gone. Betty White, who also who passed on New Year's Eve earlier today, you know, People Magazine was about to do a whole expose story on her because her hundredth birthday was in eighteen days, January seventeenth. You know, Betty White's going to live to be a hundred. It was going to be like a huge thing. Betty White, one of the most beloved, uh, you know, one of the most beloved celebrities of all time, essentially. By everybody. You know, we, Bay White turns 118 days. You know, woohoo. New Year's Eve. She's gone. What's the point? Live every day. And it's ironic because Christmas Day, for whatever the reason, uh, my we me as a family decided, which is why this is why I didn't have, a, have an opportunity to watch the old man documentary when it first aired on TV. Uh, we sat down and we watched The Last Holiday with L.O. Cool J and Queen Latifah. And, and the essential message of the movie was to live every day as if you knew it was going to be your last. Or live every day and, li- and or live your life as if you knew when you were going to die. You know, she had hit her head and sketchy doctor says she has a rare disease that's eating away at her brain and she only has, you know, days, weeks to live, everything else. So she, you know, empties out her her trust fund and her her bank account to go take a luxurious vacation over in Europe at an an elite hotel with a bunch of, uh, with a bunch of uh, Fortune 500, Fortune 500 company CEOs and, and uh, state and, and state government officials and everything else. And that was the overall message of the movie. Seeing Betty White die about a little more than two weeks out from her 100th birthday. And seeing John Madden die less than a week of, of his uh, highly anticipated documentary coming out. Message is very simple. Live every day. Seize the day. Seize every moment. As if you either knew you were going to die in the, in the in the near future, or live every day as if you knew it was going to be your last. Betty White, up until age ninety nine, enjoyed the enjoyed the hell out of her life and made and made an impact on as many people as she possibly could. John Mann didn't get to live that long; lived to eighty five. Still, has one of the, he left this earth on Tuesday leaving one of, if not the greatest impact that one human being can have, not just on a league, but an entire sport. Entire sport. Greatest ambassador to the National Football League of all time. And it's safe to say I don't think there'll be another one after him. As far as the amount of influence and, and what he gave throughout his life from essentially beginning to end. The beginning of his adult life to end to, to one singular sport, to one singular league. John Madden passed, 
passed away at 85 years old. Rest in peace to the great coach. Take a break. Get to these Week 17 NFL games coming up right after this. Welcome back to the Amatelicatias podcast. Switching gears now to uh, the Week 17 action in National Football. As a matter of fact, before I get to the Week 17 in the NFL, let me just, because uh, I kind of went through it, you know, eulogizing Madden here at the top. Let me just give you, like, my overall review of the All Madden documentary. Um, I didn't love it as everybody else did. I thought that it was very... You know, it, it, it was you know it left a lot of information on the table and like I I understand I didn't want it to go too 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 long because uh you know because it was the leading into the Browns Packers game last Saturday but I don't know it should, it, it either should have been longer and aired on a different day or they should have like chopped it up into like little parts where you know. Part one, you air it on this day on Christmas. Part two, you maybe air it, you know, on New Year's Day. Part three, you know, you air it, you know, after a, uh, if Fox has a, well, you sh- not to air it up against another NFL game, but, you know, another part you have it, you air it after a, you know, at, you air it either before or after a playoff game or whatever. I just felt that it was like they could have done a lot more with Matt because his life was so, was so, not just meaningful, but it was just so like long and it was so long and it was like so many like little, little intricate moments of his, of his, just his football life in general from his time. He was a, I'm not even talking about going into his early life, growing up as a child in high school. And all I'm talking about is literally from 1969 when he was the Raiders coach up until up until that February night in 2009 I'm I'm only talking about what is what is that that's uh I'm only talking about for like 40 years I'm all, I'm all, I'm only I'm only talking about like that for is my math right 2009 and 1969 let me see if I can get the you know you know me with the math very spotty let me make sure uh let me make sure I get that right uh, because I gotta make sure I'm accurate here. Yeah, forty years. I'm just talking about that that forty year window where John Madden was in like the in the spotlight for his work to for his work dedicated to the NFL. I mean, you could have you could have here's John here's John. I understand it, it didn't want to go a deep dive into his coaching career. I get that, but I felt like to really like gain perspective and and to get John Madden as a whole. You know, you had to go into it. At least, in my opinion, you could, you should have, and they could have gone into his coaching career, 
you should have gone into his coaching career. And then, of course, you know, when the, winning the Super Bowl, the burnout causing him to retire. What's John going to do now? Him finding his way as a broadcaster for CBS. I mean, it was just so many layers to John, to John Madden as his career as a coach and his career as a broadcaster that I really, that I felt like that, that you know, that 70, 80, however long it was, little piece, you know, really didn't do John Madden justice as it, as it could have done. You know, if you ask me to give it a grade, I'd, you know, I'd, gi- I'd, give, I'd give it a low B minus. Like, you know, from 100, from 0 to 100, I'd give it like an 81. It was good, but it could have been so much better than what it ended up being. It could, at least in my mind, in my opinion. Could could have been. Even if you don't even want to touch into his coaching career, you know, you literally could have had like a chapter for the last few years of his coaching career, the transitional piece, his early years at CBS, him, you know, his rise to fame pairing up with Summerall at CBS. The and also how he became a, a a media phenomenon with his uh, with the commercials with the commercials that he did you know plowing through plowing through uh, paper mache walls and things like that and then of course you go into the late eighties with the creation of Madden video game then you go into his move to Fox and how was that important to Fox if Fox wants to sit here you know and and pat themselves on the back for getting Madden you know they can have that. And then, of course, you know him leaving leaving Fox to go to ABC to do Monday Night Football, and then the creation. I mean, they, I mean, they they kind of touched on it, you know, piece piece by piece a little bit, but they could have went so much more in depth and so much deeper with it, in my estimation. So I, you know, I I did I didn't I didn't love it per se, but it was it was it, it wasn't terrible. It wasn't terrible. I just. They they could have they could have did they could have did so much more with it in my honest opinion. But switching gears to the week seventeen games, you know you got the Baltimore Ravens taking on the uh, L.A. Rams. Uh, Lamar Jackson, who was limited, and I do mean very limited at practice this week, did not practice on Friday. Harbaugh says that uh, that that. Lamar Jackson starting on Sunday against the Rams with their season with their season hanging on by a thread is still a viable option. It's not off the table yet, but Lamar Jackson who's rarely practiced this week. I mean, I mean, I would I'd think that he'd be that he'd be ready to go knowing he's the best player on his team. Their season is hanging in the balance. That injury was, you know, over 2 weeks ago. I understand it's not my body, it's his body, it's his ankle, so he would know obviously more than me, you know, Mr. Armchair Quarterback, but, you know, from 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 the looks of it, from an outsider's perspective, it does not look, it didn't look like to me, and I've seen the replay a hundred times, and I saw it happen, it didn't appear to me that the injury was that bad. And not to say that it, that it's that that it that it that it's worse off than what worse off than than it looked on TV. I'm not saying that you know that if he says that he's not healthy that he's not ready to go, he's not ready to go. You know he he doesn't owe me or anybody else. I mean you know he, he the only person you can make the argument and say that he owes anything to is his, is his team, the coaches, and his teammates. 
you know, because they because they count on him to go out there and answer the bell every single week, and he is their best player, former former NFL MVP from 2019. But you know, if if he says he's not running to go, he's not running to go. I'm just saying from my perspective, you know, watch watching the game in in the Baltimore in the Baltimore region, watching that game on TV being played in Cleveland. It looked like to me that it, what that. It, that it wasn't that bad of an injury to me. Now it could be worse than than what we saw, you know, whatever the case might be. But it to me, it didn't look like it was that bad an injury. But if it is, it is, you know, it's his body. He knows his ankle. He knows his body better than I do, obviously. But we'll see if he can, we'll see if he can get it, give it a go on Sunday. But he was very limited in practice this week and moved whether it's whether it's speed walking or a light jog up and down the practice field around the about like five minutes away from my house around the he was very like had a significant significant limp very very controlled mobility with his legs Tyler Huntley's off the COVID list which is which is a uh positive sign for Baltimore if Lamar isn't running to go. You know, you saw in the Bengal game how their offense was very limited about what they about what they could about what they could do with Josh Johnson because Josh Johnson's a thirty five year old quarterback, been around the league a minute and not, you know, and not the mobile type that Lamar and Huntley are. So they were very limited as far as the as far you know, Greg Roman with his play calling and the Ravens were just very limited about what they could do uh, what they could do offensively, so to get Huntley back, which would be a positive, which would be a positive sign, uh, heading into the Ram game on Sunday. And then, from a Ram perspective of things, you know, you look at you look at the Rams. Matthew Stafford. We broke down this on Tuesday. Matthew Stafford was absolutely abysmal in the game against uh, against the Vikings on Sunday. Turned over the football at infinitum. Quite, you know, arguably next to the Titan game, one of the worst next to the. Next to the Titan and the 49er game, in which he lost those two back in the month of November, one of the worst games he's that he's played as a Ram thus far this season. Thank God for his defense and the Vikings' ineptitude and self and self imploding tendencies that they walked out of that game in Minneapolis last Sunday with a W. But you know Matthew Matthew Stafford cannot afford, nor can his team afford to to for Matthew to duplicate the, that performance. Uh, down at the bank on Sunday afternoon, like he did up at U.S. Bank uh, in Minneapolis on Sunday, and expect for them to win because the I, I, you give the Ravens this, and he, and this is even after the forty-one to twenty-one beatdown last week against my Bengals. There's no quit in this team. They don't quit. They don't give up. They don't throw in the towel. They say, "Well, it's not our day today." You know, oh shucks, what are you going to do? Throw in the towel, try for next time. Uh-uh. This team fights, and this team tries to win, and they will scratch and claw and go to the wall tooth and nail in order to beat you. They are a mentally, not just physically, but a mentally, mentally tough football team. Who, you know, all you need is is a couple of self-inflicted mistakes by the opponent here and there. And next thing you know, you scratch your head and you wonder how in the world the Ravens either have the lead or or and or are within a field goal and 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 or a touchdown of tying or winning or winning the football game or go, or or going out in front by a significant amount 
You know, you, you saw you saw the Packers sleepwalk a little bit during the second half. Ravens came within one point of winning the game. You know, the Steelers' defense got a little lax during the final moments of regulation about three about three four about three weeks ago in Pittsburgh. Ravens came within what came within a two point conversion of winning the game. You know, the, the the Ravens had a lead had a lead a couple times against the Bengals and were fairly competitive competitive up until the latter stages of the second half against Cincinnati on Sunday on December twenty sixth. So you can't sleep. You can't sleep on the Ravens. And you can't give the and you can't give them a cause. Because you give them a cause, this is going to come back. It's going to come back to bite you. And you know you won't. You know a couple. You know back to back three and outs. Short. You know short drives. You take up like two minutes and thirty seconds off the clock combined for both drives. You know three and out. You blink and the Ravens will have the ball in their hands with an opportunity to tie the game or 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 take the, or take the lead. Uh, you know, with about six, five, four, three, two minutes left in the fourth quarter. So the Rams have to play polished football, limit the mistakes, limit the self, limit the uh, limit the turnovers. Play sound defensive football. Get after the quarter. Get after the quarterback. Stop the run. They should be in decent shape. That's game number one. Game number two between the Dolphins and the Titans. The Titans heading into this game, you know, this is a game that Tennessee has to have because they still have, they still have a decent chance of snagging up the number one seed in the AFC because they have the tiebreaker over Kansas City, and they are a beat down victory on October the twenty fourth, which was ironically enough the last time the Kansas City Chiefs lost the football game. So they still have an opportunity, and if they finish with the same record, Tennessee gets the one seed, of course, because of the aforementioned tiebreaker. So the one seed is still on the table for Tennessee in the AFC, and they're going to have to, you know, you know, a nice victory, nice comeback victory against uh, against San Francisco last Thursday night. They're going to have to take another. They're going to have to win another gutty gritty football game against an elite against a very good defense. This time in the uh, this time, excuse me, in the Miami Dolphins coming up on Sunday, who starting the season one and seven, seven game win streak. Eight and seven in the AFC. Eight and seven on the season. They currently hold the seventh seed in the AFC playoff picture, holding tiebreaker over the eight and seven Baltimore Ravens, who the who the uh, Dolphins beat back in mid-November on a, on that Thursday on that Thursday night that defensive slugfest back in uh, back in the month of November. So the Dolphins are also playing for playing for something as well, trying to hold on, trying to hold on to the number seven seed. And kind of, and you know, keep the win streak going as long as possible, and stay lockstep, uh, lockstep in stride with the Ravens. With the Ravens having the Rams and Pittsburgh on their schedule, back-to-back home games to close out the 2021, excuse me, regular season, and the tight, you know, and the, and the Dolphins trying to keep pace with them as their as their last two games to close out the regular season. Are are on the road against Tennessee and at home week 18 against the New England Patriots, who they beat for their first win of the season back in week one in early September. Uh, the Dolphins you saw in their game against the Saints. Now you kind of, when analyzing that Saint game from Monday night, you kind of have to take it with a grain of salt and you kind of have to look at it accordingly because the Saints were running on fumes 
and were uh, and were out of their depth with their you know with their lack of offense with their lack of depth with their offensive line. So the Saints' offensive line on Monday night was the was the equivalent of a bunch of turnstiles. So you know you saw it. Miami was was uh, was able to get away with a lot of defensive schemes, stack the box with six, seven, eight guys in the box, and just all out blitz Ian Book all at once. You know it'd be shocked to see. Well, not necessarily shocked, but you know you you would be rather surprised if you see the if you see the Dolphins, and that's been a, and that's been the name of the game. You know throughout this entire win streak is just blitz is blitz the hell out of the opposing quarterback. And either force them to make the make the bad mis- to make the poor mistake and the bad read to throw you know to, to throw a bonehead ass line interception, or they you know you know you got a second and a half two seconds even to get rid of the football and we're coming screaming and we're going to hit you and put you on your tail, and eventually you know we're going to get you know uh, we're going to get a couple of plays that go our way and we're going to force a and going to force a few fumbles and steal a possession from you, so keep an eye out for that. I don't expect for them to. Uh, Essentially, blitzkrieg the Titans the way they did the Saints, but I would certainly keep an eye out for it. And the Titans, of course, have something to play for. Trying to uh, you know, and with a Cincinnati loss, you know, so they with a Cincinnati loss would do them tremendous would do them a tremendous favor. As Kansas City has just been on a complete and utter tear. Uh, you know, a Cincinnati upset would do Tennessee uh, such such great favors. In order for them to steal their number one seed from Kansas City and make their and make Kansas City pay for their uh, for their shortcomings back in the front end of the season in September and in October back in the fall, and of course you can speak of Kansas City and go to that matchup against my Cincinnati Bengals coming up on Sunday about how Kansas City has just been clicking on all cylinders. Their defense done has complete 180 of how they performed back at the beginning of the season. Complete complete 180, limit the big plays, get after the quarterback. Chris Jones has had a phenomenal season, especially ever since uh, the uh, the Chiefs switched up the defensive scheme and put him back on the inside rather than rather than an outside rather than an outside rusher. The Chiefs defense can just do no wrong. Secondary is playing absolutely off the charts. On the offensive side of the football, they've had their moments where they've been stagnant. They've had their moments where they haven't been able to move the ball downfield. They've had their moments where they look dry. They look uninspiring. They look stale. But then, but you know, but a, a lot of times, you know, th- those uh, magnificent moments, like you saw, whether it's against Pittsburgh, whether you, whether it's against the Raiders a couple of weeks back. A lot of times, those uh, pheno- those phenomenal moments and those and their uh, fire off and their fire offensive play has outweighed has outweighed uh, their offensive shortcomings. You know, every every drive, every you know drive that comes across us. So uh, throughout this magnificent winning streak, where Kansas City has just been on an absolute tear, Patrick Mahomes has won twenty six consecutive games. In the during the time of the year of November, December, and in January, the only time he's the most recent time he's lost the game essentially after Halloween. You have to go back to the aforementioned Super Bowl Fifty Five beatdown back uh, back in February of this uh, of this uh, year of twenty twenty one. That's winding down. 
They've been on or they've played they've been on absolute fire offensively. Mahomes has played, you know, for the most part out of his mind. You st- you know, Travis, Tyree Kill has not been and this and this has just been a stat and just it's just been a thing, you know, since since the season began where Tyree Kill has not exactly been the deep ball threat, has not been the real big big time big play threat like he has been in se- like he has been in seasons past. I believe he's only had one play one bit, one big time reception, one big time play over fifty. You know, they, they went. It was fifty yard that went. That was good for fifty yards or more. Uh, whether it be passing, whether it be him to, whether it be Mahomes to him, or the yards after catch. But the, Kansas City's clicking on all cylinders, and it's going to be a tough ask, and it's going to be a huge litmus test. For the Cincinnati Bengals to see a if they can a if they can stay lockstep and stay competitive with Kansas City throughout the game, and b to see if they and b to see if they can win. You know, I think you know they're still away for them to blow it, still away for them to choke, but they have a they have a they I believe they I don't know it to be exact by the exact number, but I believe it's like at a seventy five percentish chance, maybe a little bit higher than that. For them to make the playoffs, so you kind of have to look at it as if, as long as they finish, as long as they finish with ten wins, rather if they go eleven and six or ten and seven, they're going to win their division. They're going to make the playoffs. They're going to host a home playoff game. But the litmus test with them playing Kansas City is whether or not is whether or not a if they can hang with them and to see you know where 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 you know because the last time the Bengals played Kansas City. Was was the year was the year of Mahomes' coming out party in 2018? Of course, that was with an old regime and with Marvin Lewis as head coach. So this is the first real true test and re- real first true opportunity that the Zach that this current Bengals team with Zach Taylor as the head coach and Burrow and everybody else has an opportunity to go up against. Uh, had a chance to go up against Mahomes this time, but it'll be a litmus test to see if the Bengals can hang with them, if they can stay competitive, and to see if they're in the same stratosphere as far as being competitive with Kansas City to be a potential threat in the AFC to Kansas City to become a, dare I say, Super Bowl contender in the seasons down the road. If they win, if the Bengals somehow pull off the upset, I believe the line is at five and a half. If they pull off the upset and beat Kansas City, you know, you you will hear a lot of talk of the Bengals being a sleeper Super Bowl pick coming out of the AFC, and and, and you will hear a lot of talk of you know Kansas City if if either if everything breaks right for the Bengals this year and this happens to be their year or whatever. Within the next couple of years, don't be surprised to, to see the Bengals compete in some AFC Championship games and then go to a Super Bowl or two. If if they beat Kansas City, you'll hear that. And and you'll hear a lot of you know Bengals are are a are a dark horse or or I can't speak a dark horse Super Bowl contender heading into the playoffs. That's if and only if the Bengals find a way to win this game. You'll he- you'll hear a lot of talk about about how you know the Bengals are probably closer to being a championship contender than everybody thinks. But that is, that that only comes with the upset. And much is given, much is required if they go out there and they beat Kansas City this weekend. I don't expect them to. I don't expect them to be a complete pushover. But I, I don't. I, being being fair and being honest, you know, from as as a fair and honest 
realistic fan and just as a football fan slash quote-unquote analyst slash commentator in general, you know, I, I don't expect Cincy to win this game. Crazier things have happened. The momentum is, you know, it, momentum's even kill on both sides. But Cincinnati, but there's something special going on with the Cincinnati Bengals team right now. Wouldn't it would surprise America? Wouldn't really surprise me if they pull off the upset. Don't expect them to, but it wouldn't surprise me if uh, if the Bengals have a couple tricks up their sleeve. Off their offense goes off again, and and we see essentially the September October Kansas City Chiefs defense at Paul Brown Stadium on Sunday, and their defense you know looks like the way they did. You know, in the Bronco game about two weeks ago, I don't expect it to happen because the Bengals were absolutely putrid. Now they get Logan Wilson back this weekend, which is a huge, 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 huge positive boost to the linebacker core, a linebacker core that the Bengals are going to have to address and continue to build upon in free agency and throughout the upcoming drafts later on down the road with the most recent one coming up this upcoming spring. But they get Logan Wilson back this week. You know, which is a huge benefit to Cincinnati. Nobody of significance on the COVID list for Kansas City and/or for Baltimore throughout this game. You know, throughout this game to be overtly concerned about, overly concerned about. But you know, on paper, this is the best game of the weekend. Bengals trying to Bengals trying to win the uh, Bengals trying to win the division for the first time since twenty. So for the first time since twenty fifteen. Kansas City trying to lock up the one seed with a win on Sunday and a Tennessee loss to the Dolphins, which would give the Dolphins their eighth win in a row. Interesting storylines in the AFC uh, in Week 17. And they continue with the Raiders and the Colts. It's also an intriguing matchup as well. All of a sudden, the Raiders, who we thought were left for dead uh, back in November, all of a sudden keep on keeping on and just will not die as they are going to fight tooth and nail, give Coach Rich Passaccia a, a ton of credit for keeping his team locked in and focused and competitive uh, this deep into the season with all the distractions and all the turmoil that took place, you know, from John Gruden to Henry Ruggs and everything else. Uh, give him credit as, a, as the Raiders are still sitting here, you know, first weekend of the new year, and they're still playing competitive, meaningful regular season and a regular season NFL football. So, and and the rate and there's no and there's no reason in the world in the world why the Raiders can't win this game because Carson Wentz went down earlier this week with COVID. Of course, the starting quarterback for the Indianapolis Colts, which is just listen. You heard my take on it back in the summertime. I've said it at him for I don't care if you don't like it. I don't care if you disagree. KLS. Bottom line is that Carson Wentz should have been vaccinated. Just from a public health standpoint, national pandemic going on, you know, people are dying by the hundreds of thousands, you know, in the in the span of the last two years or so. Millions around the world, around the country have died from this thing. God knows how many people have contracted it since March of 2020 and late December of 2021. It's just a smart reasonable, sensible, American safest thing to do is get yourself vaccinated. Not just to protect yourself, but to protect other people. 
and not and just not to run the risk of you contracting it, it doing a number on you, and then next thing you know, you sit up in the hospital breathing on a ventilator or needing oxygen or something. Especially in Winter's case, when he's got a young daughter, and if you've seen the Hard Knocks, you know the episodes of Hard Knocks at the last month or so, how how his how his wife had a had a had a had another kid on the way, and though and those and and, and their kids are so young that they that they can't get back. You know, CDC says. You know, kids at a certain age, they're young at a certain at a certain enough age, they can't get vaccinated. Knowing that, Carson Wentz just walks around, you know, not vaccinated. It's like, really, Carson? Really? God forbid you somehow contract that, you know, dealing with some stranger, you know, out in the public. You're a public figure out in the public all the time. Or or you or you or you, or you contract it or whatever and throughout the practice facility and then you go home. And then you go home, and you, and you go home, you give it, you give it to your kids, and it's like it's game over, most likely. Or you have to deal with that awful sight and that awful picture of of uh, of looking at your kid, of looking at your kid, you know, in, on life support essentially in a in a hospital, all because of something that you could have prevented just by getting a shot. And again, I know it doesn't wipe away. You can still catch COVID while vaccinated, but the but the threat of of extreme illness and the threat of hospitalization and the threat of death essentially goes away once you get vaccinated. And once is you know got got two young kids running around his house, he's in and out of it all the time, and he you know unvaccinated. And he, and he, and that and that's not even looking looking at it from a football standpoint of things, where where you know he's the quarterback of his team, getting paid millions. I understand Jonathan Taylor may be the most valuable player on the on the field, and may be the best player on the roster, best player on his team, but he make but he's one of the highest highest paid players. But Wentz is still the, one of the highest paid players on his team. The Colts gave up a first round draft pick to get him. And he plays, he's not the most viable player, but he plays the most viable position at quarterback. And, you know, to hell with everything else, my, with the my body, my choice foolishness, doesn't get vaccinated and all of a sudden test positive for COVID. And most likely is going to miss the game on Sunday. I mean, knowing good and full well that if you're vaccinated, all you need is two negative tests within 48 hours and or to be asymptomatic and you're good. And Wentz chose not to do so. And same, and same thing with Kirk Cousins. You know, Mister, I'll wrap myself up in a bubble and go about life that way. But I'll be, but I'll be damned if I take a vaccine. I mean, really, Kirk? Really? If I die, I die. Okay. All right. All right. If God, God forbid, if the, if the, if this if this becomes worse, which you know, I pray to God just for the sake of humanity that it isn't. But at a second conversation, if it, if if it re- if it really did a real number on you, and you'd be sitting up at a local Minnesota, excuse me, Minneapolis hospital somewhere, I wonder if you, I wonder if you'll have the same energy. Just a thought. And with and with uh, and with cousins, it's worse because it's because he tests positive, you know, two days before a game, even with the updated protocols. And and because he's unvaccinated, there's no chance in hell he has a fling. 
None. If he was vaccinated, the two negative, the two negative tests in the forty-eight hours, you're good to go. Vaxxed and un- and asymptomatic, most likely be good to go. But because you're uneven with the updated protocols, you're unvaxxed, you have symptoms, you test positive, you can't play. Nor should he, and nor isn't he. Especially when you, you know, when you when you get this, you know, forty eight hours before a game, can't play. Whether it's whether it's the whether it's the fourteen day, the ten day, the seven day, not a five day, you test you test positive for COVID a Friday before the game, you're not you're not playing. Simple. And again, Mister Bubble, who who was adamant sitting up there in training camp back in August in front of America, saying, "I'm not going to take this vaccine." I wonder if he'd take it now, if he if he knew that it gave him a better chance, if it gave him a better chance to play for his for for himself and for his teammates on Sunday. Now, now the Vikings, in my honest opinion, had no chance of winning the game anyway. You know, and Lambo on Sunday night, but not, but not, and and the game was a bad game to begin with. Also, now now the game's completely dead. I, I understand if I want to give you Rodgers and Lambeau Field throughout the holiday season, I could care less. Get the get the game is is, is the, we haven't even kicked off yet, and I and I and that game is a complete and utter. You know, we're not even twenty four hours, twelve hours away from kickoff of that game yet at the time of this recording. And I'm telling you, here and now has gotta be my witness without fear of contradiction. That game is set up from the get go to be a complete bore and to be a complete waste of time. It was before Kirk tested positive. Now it now without Kirk Cousins, it's completely unwatchable. Unwatchable. And then you have the Cardinals and the Cowboys. You know, the Cardinals coming off of their, you know, aforementioned speak of the devil, coming off of their loss on Christmas Day to the Indianapolis Colts at home. They've hit a little bit of a rut as of late. they got to get it. they got to get themselves organized. got to get themselves ordered quick and fast. You know, Kyler Murray, uh, less sloppy with the football Make uh make more uh make more pre- more precise decisions throwing the ball downfield more accurate throws especially when he tries to hit receivers on deep routes uh, down the field towards the sideline limit the turnovers as a from as a cardinal team limit the self inflicted mistakes they were penalized off the freaking charts like you wouldn't believe on Christmas night uh you had a you had a you know a bot snap in the end zone Kyler Murray panics throws it out of the end zone. Gets caught with his pants around his ankles for a uh, for a uh, intentional grounding penalty. I mean, you can't you can't you can't have that when you're playing the Dallas Cowboys. When the Dallas Cowboys are on, and when and when they're clicking on all cylinders on offensively, defensively, and the coaches are calling a good game and have, and have coached them right heading into the game and all throughout the game, you 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 you're 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 DOA, you're DOA. Especially if you make bonehead, asinine, self-inflicted mistakes, and and you and you hold and you hold your and you hold yourself back, you're your own worst enemy. You're your own worst opponent. Dallas Cowboys eat that eat that crap up for dinner. And if you're the Cardinals, you gotta limit the mistakes, limit the turnovers. You know, no botch snaps, fumbles, interceptions, things of that nature. Cliff Kingsbury has to make sure he has his head on straight and make sure that, you know, when you're down 10 points and you have no timeouts and this is about 10, 2 minutes or less 
in the game that that it's wiser and you're better off kicking a field goal as soon as you get into field goal range with as much time as possible so that way if you are ever so fortunate to recover the onside kick you at least get it you at least get you at least get it a little over a minute maybe a little less than a minute of uh of time left on the clock to march down the field and and to and to put the ball in the end zone and, and score the touchdown to either win the game or tie it let's see if cliff kingsbury uh, is alive, awake, and well uh, heading into the game on Sunday. And then if you're Dallas, you know, yeah, now their defense is, is a tad overrated because they've gone up against some garbage offenses. You know, Washington, if you go and just, let's just for the sake of conversation, before we get to the picks, go through the Dallas Cowboys schedule. They have not went up against, you know, great offenses by any stretch. You know the the Washington offense. No, the Washington offense has been pedestrian at best this season. Giants offense is one of the worst in the sport. Saints offenses, especially. You know they've had no Michael Thomas all season long, and essentially post Jameis, their offense has been has been pathetic. You know, right, the, the the big time offense they went up against, and the Raiders and the Chiefs. They lost both of those games back to back. Uh, you know, and they're and they're and they're one big time victory. Oh no, outside of the Charger game in Week Two, which kind of goes a long way, and they did, uh, and they did beat the Patriots in overtime back in uh, back in Week Six on the road, uh, prior to their bye week. But you know, they've the big the big bad team they went up against in the uh, the big bad team they went up against in the NFC was Tampa, and they lost that game thirty one twenty nine. So you know th- this this is a, this is a this is a decent test for the Dallas Cowboy uh, defense as well to see if they can essentially see more of the same from Kyler Murray and the uh, and the you know barely treading with their head above water Arizona Cardinals and their stagnant offense within the last couple of weeks uh, and, and you know Dak Prescott you count for him to be on. Limit the turnovers, limit the mistakes, and it should be a good afternoon for the Dallas Cowboys and company uh, at AT&T Stadium on Sunday. Still got, still want to uh, give you my t- at the time of this recording, the Georgia Michigan game is going on, uh, is going on at the moment at the time of this recording. Right now, it is twenty to three Georgia with uh, two fifty and counting in the second quarter at the Capital One Orange Bowl College Football Playoff Semifinal. Uh, I will get to uh, Alabama beating Cincinnati coming up uh, later on in the program. But after the break, Week 17 picks against the spread coming up right after this. Welcome back 
to the Amatelaki Tiaiers podcast. Hell of a song by my main man, Justin Timberlake. For the final time in the 2021 calendar year, but the second to last time for the 2021 NFL regular season, you know what time it is. Week 17 picks against the spread in the league where they play. For pay. Kansas City Chiefs going up against my Cincinnati Bengals. Kansas City's favorite minus four points in this game. They're 11-4 coming off of their absolute humiliating beatdown of a victory against Cincinnati's division rival Pittsburgh last week. Cincinnati coming off of a blowout victory of their own, beating Baltimore 41-21 last Sunday. I pray to God, pray to God. On my knees, pray that the Bengals pull off the upset. They're only underdogs by four points. So I said it was five and a half, it's four. I pray that that the Bengals pull off the upset and and beat the back-to-back AFC champions to win the division on Sunday. But I got to be realistic about things. Kansas City Chiefs are going to win this game by the final score of 31-21. I'd pick the Bengals, but... I, 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 I need evidence that they're going to be able to stop the Kansas City Chiefs defense. They let Mark Andrews eat them up on su- last Sunday. They let uh, uh, George Kittle destroy them about two weeks prior to that. I got I got to go with my head over my heart here in this one. Game number two, the Atlanta Falcons, who are 7-8 and eight going up against, who took care of business against the Detroit Lions and won their first home game in over a year. Uh, last week, believe it or not, going against the Buffalo Bills, who are 9-6. and six. Buffalo is coming off of their victory on the road against New England. Buffalo, 14.5-point favorites on Sunday. Uh, you know, Buffalo is just... They, 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 they are, they've been, they, you know, you know what the thing is with Buffalo? They've been clicking on all cylinders since the second half of the, of the Buccaneers game. Whatever they did in this, in, during halftime of that Buccaneers game a few weeks ago, it's been working. And the Bills are just in one of those grooves where they can just do no wrong. Give me the Buffalo Bills to win this game by the final score of 42 to 17. The Chicago Bears going up against the New York football giants. The Bears are 5-10, getting their fifth win of the season on the road against the Seattle Seahawks, thanks to the legend of Nick Foles last week, while the, while the Giants, you know, just invent new ways for an ineptitude at 4-11 on the season. Chicago's favorite minus six points. Give me the Chicago Bears to win this game by the final score of 24-17. Tennessee Titans are home against the Miami Dolphins. Tennessee's three and a half point favorites against the Miami Dolphins, who, like I mentioned earlier in the program, who are eight and seven, riding their seven game win streak, currently hold the seventh seed in the AFC playoffs. But Tennessee Titans are the better football team. Give me the Titans to win this game in a defensive slugfest by the final score of 17 14. The Indianapolis Colts. Play host to the Vegas Raiders. Vegas is 8-7 on the season. Coming off of their home victory against the Denver Broncos last week. Indianapolis is at 9-6. Coming off of uh, their win on Christmas night against Arizona as well. Their favorite minus 7 points. Give me the Vegas Raiders 
to pull off the upset by the final score of 24-17. Jacksonville Jaguars take on the New England Patriots. Jaguars are just a gift that keeps on giving as far as uh, self-inflicted ineptitude. They're 2-13. and 13. Uh, They lost last time out to the New York Jets on the road uh, in their second game post-Urban Meyer. The New England Patriots lost at home, of course, last time in their last game to the Buffalo Bills. Patriots are favoring minus 16 points, giving the New England Patriots to win this game in a clinic about a final score of 35-7. The Tampa Bay Buccaneers are 11-4, taking on uh, Tom Brady's old nemesis and the New York Jets at the Meadowlands. Tampa Bay's favorite minus 13 points. Tampa Bay took care of business uh, against the Carolina Panthers last week while the Jets took care of business at home against the Jacksonville Jaguars last Sunday, giving the Tampa Bay Buccaneers the win in the beatdown by the final score of 31-10. to the Philadelphia Eagles are taking on the Washington football team who got absolutely destroyed by the final, allowing 56 points in their loss to the Dallas Cowboys on Sunday. Philadelphia's favorite minus four and a half, having beaten the Giants at home last week. They are currently in a position to take the seventh seed in the, nat- in the National Football Conference, giving the Philadelphia Eagles to win this game. Their second matchup in three weeks, the last time these two teams played, of course, was two weeks ago on that Tuesday night back in week 15, giving the Philadelphia Eagles to complete the season sweep by the final score of 27-13. The Los Angeles Rams take on the Baltimore Ravens. Rams are five-and-a-half-point favorites. The Ravens, of course, last time out lost to my Bengals 41-21 last week. The Rams were able to walk out of Minnesota with the victory by the hair of their chinny-chin-chin. Give me, and as much as I would love, love, love to see the Rams and Matthew Stafford get rattled and embarrassed by that raucous uh, Baltimore crowd down at the bank on Sunday. I got to, and it would make me happy, you know, to annoy Mike and the OC, how his, how, you know, his old prissy finesse sunshine, uh, sunshine LA team comes eastward to, uh, to uh, blue-collar, hard-nosed, rough, tough, tough-as-nails, bad-enough Baltimore and get the brakes beaten off of them. But I don't think that's going to happen, regardless if Lamar Jackson plays or not. Give me the Rams to win this game by the final score of 30 of 35-21. Denver Broncos uh, go to SoFi to play the Chargers, who absolutely embarrassed themselves at NRG Stadium down in Houston last week. Denver Broncos are 7-8 coming off of another pathetic loss on the road to the Vegas Raiders. Chargers need this game in the worst way if they even want to make the playoffs at season's end. Chargers are favored minus 7.5. Give me the Chargers to win this game by the final score of 21-14. Houston Texans go on the road to play the San Francisco 49ers. 49ers favorite minus 12. Jimmy Garoppolo's going to try to give it a go with the bad finger. Houston Texans, you know, they're they're they they may be a poorly ran franchise, but they don't but they don't quit on each other. Uh, they go up against San Francisco at Levi Stadium. Give it to San Francisco 49ers to win this game in a nail biter by the final score. 
of 24 to 21. The Arizona Cardinals go to Dallas to play the Dallas Cowboys, who are six-point favorites. Dallas Cowboys, of course, beat the brakes off of Washington last Sunday night. Arizona lost at home on Christmas night to the uh, Indianapolis Colts, 10-5 against 11-4. Make the argument the winner of this game gets gets most likely the three seed in the NFC. Also, the Cardinals have to worry about the Rams who are on their back as far as taking first place and winning the NFC West, so keep an eye out for that as well. Give me the Dallas Cowboys to win this game, though, by the final score of 28 to 17. Carolina Panthers go to New Orleans to take on this to take on the New Orleans Saints. Saints is seven and eight. Lost to the Dolphins on Monday night. Carolina lost to the Bucks on Sunday afternoon. Saints are favorite minus six and a half. Give me the Saints to win this game in a defensive slugfest uh, by the final score of 21 to 10. And the Detroit Lions taking on the Seattle Seahawks. Uh, taking on the Seattle Seahawks on Sunday afternoon. Seattle's 5-10, and 7.5 point favorites against the Detroit Lions who lost to the Falcons on Sunday. Uh, you know, maybe it's the last game of Russell Wilson's career as a Seahawk. Who knows? Give me the Seattle Seahawks win this game by the final score of 24-21. to 21. And the Minnesota uh, Vikings taking the the Kirk Cousins less Minnesota Vikings taking on the Green Bay Packers on Sunday Night Football. Green Bay's favorite minus thirteen points. Give me the Green Bay Packers to win this game in a beatdown by the final score of fifty-two to ten. Uh, the Cleveland Browns on Sunday Night Football. Ben Roethlisberger's final Monday Night Football game of his career, his final game against the Cleveland Browns of his career, and his final home game of his NFL, of his Hall of Fame NFL career. Cleveland's favorite minus three and a half. Give me the Cleveland Browns to win this game by, you know, in a very entertaining dumpster fire car accident of a football game. Uh, on the first Monday night of the new year. Give me the Cleveland Browns to win this game by the final score of 20-17. to 17. And those are your Week 17 picks against the spread. Take a break. Give you my two cents on the Alabama-Cincinnati game to close out the program. This is the Amatelica TIS Podcast. Welcome back to the Amatella Is podcast. Closing up this last 2021 episode of your favorite little podcast in this uh, segment here on a, a New Year's Eve on a Friday night. 
uh, is that uh, with the college football uh, with the college football uh, playoff semifinal games, I will break down the Orange Bowl on Tuesday's episode for you. But with the Cotton Bowl game already in the books, I will take the time in the last remaining moments of the show to give you my two cents and a recap of this game as Alabama took care of business by by defeating the uh, first-time here Cincinnati Bearcats by the final score of 27-6. Hey, it basically came down to this, folks. Cincinnati lined defense was lined up the majority of the game in a three-three-five defense, which is which essentially is three defensive linemen, three linebackers, five DBs, preparing for Bryce Young to rip it, rip it and sling it all afternoon. And to a certain degree, he did seventeen to twenty-eight through through for three touchdown passes on the afternoon, but they only managed for him to throw for a buck eighty-one through the air. But what came with that is the fact that Cincinnati made absolute, made little to no defensive adjustments to the fact that Alabama saw that, took advantage of that, and said, "Okay, fine, we'll we'll run the football forty seven, we'll run the ball forty seven times against you, and we'll have Brian Robinson Jr. You know, we'll give him the ball twenty six times, and he'll rack up." 200, 204 rushing yards before the app before the before the game and for the afternoon is over, uh, and that's essentially what happened. Cincinnati was like, "You're not going to beat us throwing the football." Saban and Bill O'Brien, the offensive coordinator, said, "Okay, fine, we'll run it 47 times and dare and dare you to stop us." And we'll, Brian Robinson will will carry the will carry will carry the majority of the heavy of the workload and we'll give him the ball 26 times and he'll run for over 200 yards on the ground and you guys aren't going to do a damn thing about it to stop it. And lo and behold, and lo and behold, you know, Cincinnati had, had zero answers in the, in the running game. They were absolutely abysmal against the run, uh, against the run on, uh, on Friday afternoon. And of course you look on the offensive side, offensive side, Cincinnati could not put the ball, could not put the ball in the end zone. You know, Ritter, who's had a hell of a season, give him credit, but, you know, missed many a missed many a big time uh, plays in the game. Receivers dropped two touchdown passes that would have been that would have helped Cincinnati significantly throughout the course of the game. Dropped two uh, vital touchdown passes that have to be caught. Uh, they were not able to run the football tremendously. Well, they as a team on twenty only ran the ball twenty six times for a total of for a total of seventy four yards. They they their offenses didn't show up. You know, for for you know, to not go through all the machinations and go through all the uh, all the wor- all the all the ex- drawn out word choice, their offense just didn't show up. Their 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 offense was absolutely pathetic. And I said I I didn't tweet it, but I said it to myself at the time when Cincinnati kicked the kicked that kicked that field goal at, at the be kicked that field goal. Uh, in the th- kick their kick that field goal in the third quarter, of capping off an eleven play, fifty six capping off an eleven play, fifty six yard drive. I'm saying to myself, I said Cincinnati, Cincinnati's down seventeen three, fourth that what was it? It was fourth and it was fourth and five at the Alabama nineteen with nine fifty seven to go in the third quarter. I didn't tweet it, but I said to myself, and I even replied to good old Huck in Missouri. Well, I was going back and forth with on Twitter throughout the throughout the uh, variation throughout the excuse me the duration of that game, and I said, 
Cincinnati's Cincinnati's down 17-3. They got the ball at the Alabama 19-yard line, 4th and 5. They might not get this deep into Alabama territory for the majority of the game. And it, and if they and if they don't, you would you want to seize the moment, seize the opportunity and put the ball and put the ball in the end zone as scarce as the opportunities presented itself for Cincinnati to for Cincinnati to march down the field and put up 6 points. I'm saying right? fourth and 5, you're going to you got a large, so it's so it's not like if you don't get it, the game is not the game isn't exactly. You have to have this. You have to have you have to put the ball in the end zone in this possession, and this possession and this drive has to end in a touchdown instead of a field goal. And it's not like you know that it that it was in a situation where you're down by six, you're down by ten, you're down by thirteen, where a field goal where you don't want to go chasing points, but it was like you're down seventeen to three. You score a touchdown. You're down set. You're only down seven points. It's a one possession game. You're down seventeen ten. Your field goal. Your field goal kicker spotty to begin with. I understand it's a chip shot, but still, fourth and five. You might want to put. The, you might want to see if you can. You know, t- show and tell Alabama that you mean business. That you want to hang with them in this game. You want to. You know, try to win this game and try to steal this game from them. That you ain't here to mess around. You got again going up against the big boys and go and when you're a when you're when you're an underdog going going up against a powerhouse and nobody expects you to win the game. You got you got to take some chances just to send a message to your opponent that you mean business, that you're not here to screw around, that you're more than happy, that you're more than just happy to be there, that you're there to win to win the football game. Since I didn't do that, they elected to kick the field goal on the fourth and five at the Alabama 19-yard line, 37-yard field goal, and that was the last point uh, Cincinnati would score throughout the remaining of that third quarter and all throughout the 15-minute fourth quarter period as they ended up losing that game 27-6. to And the next thing you know, Alabama goes out there, they force a punt, Cincinnati gets the ball back, three plays, one yard, they take one minute off the clock, they pumped the football, and then all of a sudden, you know, the coup de grace to Cincinnati's spectacular Cinderella season. They throw it. They, you know, they get in there. They, uh, or excuse me, I, I, I apologize. The, I, I apologize. Cincinnati gets some life, forcing Bryce Young to throw an intercept, to throw an interception to give Cincinnati the ball at their forty-nine yard line. Excellent field position. Still down seventeen-six. So if you go down the field, you score a touchdown. You go down the field to score a touchdown. It's uh, it's it's what? It's seventeen thirteen. So you're with, so you're with so you're with, so you put yourself seventeen thirteen. You put yourself in a situation where if you stop out Alabama, you get the ball back. You put the ball in the end zone. You take the lead. You kick a field goal. You come with you. You bring yourself to within a point. They get the interception. Excellent field position at the Cincinnati forty nine yard line. Three plays. Negative sixteen yards take exactly two minutes off the clock to give the ball back to Alabama at their own 30-yard line, march down the field, nine plays, 70 yards, touchdown to, to end the game to put the game out of reach. You saw throughout the, throughout the moments of that game where Alabama was there and they meant business and Cincinnati was just happy to be there, soaking up the experience, still riding on the high of, holy crap, we actually made it to the Final Four. We're playing in a college football playoff semifinal game. We're playing at the Cotton Bowl Classic. We're going up against Saban. We're going up against Big Bang. They were lost in the moment. And, and, and Connor, you make the argument, got caught up in their own hype. 
Defense played as well as they possibly could. They held held Alabama to a scoreless third quarter, and it was and it was seventeen. It was seven to three at the end of the first quarter, and it was seventeen to three by halftime. Defense defense did as well as they possibly could and hung in there with Alabama as long as they possibly could. But when your offense can't move the ball downfield worth a lick, they can't make plays. The receivers dropping passes left and right can't put the ball in the end zone. Eventually, the dam's going to break. And it did, and Alabama walked away with a 27-6 victory. And they play for the right in 10 days to play for yet another college football national championship at Indianapolis uh, to await the winner of the Mich- of the uh, Michigan-Georgia Orange Bowl semifinal game going down in South Beach. I'm pretty sure Cincinnati will learn from it. It's a tough pill to swallow. Piece of humble pie that I guarantee you doesn't taste good going down. But they as a program and they for the players of the football team that will be there in 2022, they'll be better for it. Learning experience. Season was a success, but Alabama was there and they meant business. Cincinnati was kind of basking in their own glory of just happy to be here. Got too, you know, too caught up in the moment. For Nick Saban, coach the Alabama team, the moment's never too big for him. Never. I don't care if they lost the. I don't care if they lost to Texas A&M early in the season, back in October, or or got taken to the wall by Auburn in the Iron Bowl or not. Big stages. Nick Saban's team nine times out of ten always comes out on top. And you saw that in the post game because the Alabama players, you know, the Brian Richardson was getting interviewed by Molly McGrath after the game. He was locked in and, you know, conversing to whatever, whichever one of his buddies that was dapping him up, hugging him, whispering something in his ear. Molly McGrath had to like kind of like tug his arm and kind of get his attention that, hey, you're on national television. Let's get this interview over and done with or whatever. And, and you saw the Alabama players during the during the trophy ceremony during this trophy ceremony at the end of the Cotton Bowl with their answers and just their demeanor and their attitude. They were locked in. Saban was locked in with the answers he gave to McGrath and his answers that he gave to Rutledge and the interviews after the game. They they were just they were complete. They were I I tweeted it out. They were so focused and so locked in that they gave off an attitude and they gave off a mindset as if you know whoever we play whoever we play you know. I'm 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 ready to go if you guys are come uh, you know come come tomorrow afternoon. They had a they had a mindset after that game was over that they were ready to play the that they were ready to play the national championship game tomorrow. That's how not just Saban, but that's just how locked in his players were and Saban was after the game. They were that dialed in. They weren't satisfied. They knew the job was not was incomplete, and and there still was a job to be done. They didn't bask in the glory of the confetti and the cotton ball and all this other nonsense. It was like, uh, uh-uh. we got a national championship game to play in about two weeks. Job's not done. We we still got unfinished business to take care of. And watch Alabama again win the national championship game. They're that dialed in, and Saban is that hell of a coach. He's the greatest for a reason. He's the greatest for the reason. He, he, excuse me, he is the greatest for a reason. Unbelievable. 
I mean, I, I, Alabama put on a put on a freaking defensive clinic, clinic against Cincinnati on Friday afternoon. Clinic, clinic. Well, there you have it. The final 2021 episode of the Amatelic Tears podcast in the books. What do we? What do we? Let's just go back and just look at the look look back and look at the accolades in which we've accomplished. Uh, this season, throughout the hist- throughout the uh, short history of this program, when did we? I know we we eclipsed two hundred episodes about uh, last week, if not the week before that, I believe. And uh, since in a million thank yous and great appreciation to that. And I know that throughout this calendar year, at least I think we did eclipse over a hundred over 100 episodes this year uh no he did not we eclipsed 200 episodes earlier this year on uh and that was on that was about a week ago christmas eve as a matter of fact if you haven't listened to that episode i don't know why you would but if you haven't go back and listen to that if you haven't 200th episode i was uploaded on christmas eve 200 episodes of the i'm gonna tell like a tis podcast Thank you to Urinating Tree, uh, of course, Christopher Mad Dog Russo, Daniel Oifusi, Brendan, all the other people that have joined this show and have been a guest on this show from January of, of this year all the way up until now. Happy New Year, everybody. Have a safe, wonderful, and memorable New Year's Eve. Uh, many blessings and good health to you and your family in 2022. Appreciate the hell out of you guys for listening and subscribing and following this program on social media, sharing it with your friends and family. It is your boy, Jai Shields. Enjoy the New Year's Day college football games and week 17 of the National Football League. Happy New Year to you guys. I'll see you next year. Yes, I know it's a corny joke, but I'll see you Tuesday. See you.